When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska, and this is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. Now, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a major investment from Walmart Canada. We're going to dig into the lumber shortage that we're also seeing across this country. And we'll dig into whether now is a good time for business owners to look at potentially selling their business. Now, to get through all these stories, we are joined once again by Mark Satov. He's a business strategy expert and founder of Satov Consultants, and he's here to help us find solutions and ideas for businesses dealing with the pandemic. Mark, I know you were on a camping trip for the last few days. I'm glad to see that you have survived and are back to talk about some really interesting topics. I am very excited. I'm happy to have made it through. Uh, I don't want you to be alarmed by the way I say this, but there's a theme today and I feel like I finally have some expertise to share uh, that's relevant to all the topics because the there's a theme of business change that runs through uh, all of the stories uh, and it'll be very interesting to talk about how businesses think about that. Yeah, and I think we, we're overdue to dig into this kind of what we're going to be discussing today. So uh, let's jump right into it and talk about the top stories that have us talking. Um, I want to begin with Walmart, the largest retail in the world, announced this week that they are going to be investing $3.5 billion over the next five years in Canada to do a whole bunch of things, including build two new distribution centers, renovate an existing one, renovate uh, more than 150 stores, as well as expand their e-commerce. Um, I spoke to Walmart Canada's CEO a few days back, and he said, quote, the coronavirus probably did more for digital transformation than any CEO out there. Um, I thought that was interesting because right now we're seeing a lot of retailers that are actually struggling, whereas Walmart is moving their digital transformation forward. I mean, what do you make of this pretty sizable investment? It is a big investment uh, for their business in Canada. Uh, I think there's some, first of all, there's some context, right? The context is Walmart has been a laggard in e-commerce. They are still the largest retailer in the world, but not by as much as they used to be. Obviously, Amazon is catching up and they've done it by dominating in e-commerce. Uh, and then the, the other backdrop, of course, is that the pandemic is happening and it is accelerating everybody's push towards more e-commerce. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are two things that I would say concern me a little bit about the move. And I'm not uh, going to say that it is the wrong move. But uh, the first thing is uh, they're a laggard and they haven't executed well. And so when we think about this change, I think it's important for them to think about one, you know, is it the right strategy, which we'll talk about, but are they able to execute it well? 
And it includes not just e-commerce and distribution that supports e-commerce, but it includes in-store technology. And that in-store technology includes uh, self-checkout, and it includes, uh, uh, there's a term for it, but you know, taking an item off the shelf and uh, having that immediately been checked out. Okay, mm. So those two technologies have been talked about at retail shows for more than five years, uh, 10 years for the uh, self-checkout, because we've seen it in grocery stores the last five years. And I will just say here, it is so far a fail. And it's a fail because it's not good for consumers. And I'm sure you know that when you go to Shoppers or Drug Mart or you go to any uh, grocer and you have more than two or three items and you're trying to do the self-checkout one at a time and in the bag and yes, next item, you realize that it is much quicker to actually use the cashier. And okay. technologies that work are and, and that take hold are ones where it is better for the provider and better for the consumer. And so what they have to be careful about here is that when they think about e-commerce, and when they think about self-checkout, and again, the other technology where, you know, you just pull something off the shelf and it's automatically uh, gone through on your credit card. As I say, I saw that at retail shows five years ago when Amazon had their first stores. Not happening yet. It's, it's not happening. It's for a reason. Um, one thing I thought was interesting about the self-checkout is they realized that through the coronavirus pandemic, customers are buying way more things in fewer trips. So every time you go to Walmart, you're buying a ton of more stuff. And they've really realized that the self-checkout doesn't work for that. You know, it's, as you mentioned, having one, two, three items, that's when it's ideal. Um, so they said they're going to expand it so it can handle that bigger basket size. Um, do you think, like, I, what I think is interesting is that they are, this is a trend we're seeing as a result of the pandemic. Clearly, they think that's here to stay. Do you agree? Yeah, I've said on this show and on many other forums, we have to be careful about the fact that, uh, you know, e-commerce in grocery, I don't want to say it's a blip because that would be uh, more extreme than I intend to say. It is definitely going up and it will come back down. It will come back down, not to where it was before, but it will not stay at the level it is right now and grow from there. Uh, on the self-checkout, I mean, they could say they're expanding the capacity, but the issue with the self-checkout isn't the amount of room that you have. The issue with the self-checkout is two things. One is the way the system works for the consumer is different than the way it works for the cashier. And the consumer uh, does self-checkout for 12 minutes a week and the cashier does it for 40 hours a week. And so there's a training thing and you watch them. Like every job, you get good at your job when you've done it for a while. And so the cashier is going to take an order uh, and run a you know $300 order through in literally like two minutes. And it would take us 15 minutes. And so first of all, there's a frustration issue. And second of all, there's a throughput issue because you already have a big lineup. So listen, we're gonna we're getting into a lot of the details, and I know that they've thought about it. And Walmart is generally buttoned down. I'm gonna say that uh, I will believe it when I see it. That uh, you go to a store and you see people with 30 items or more doing self checkout and walking out with a smile on their face. Hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, another interesting part of Walmart's announcement is the that they are actually investing in their own supply chain and, and trying to make it um, smoother. So I do want to talk about a survey that came out this week uh, from HSBC that found that one in five Canadian companies are diversifying their supply chains as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, that might seem like a lot, but it's actually fewer compared to the rest of the world, which was also included in the survey um, where roughly about one in three businesses outside of Canada globally were looking at diversifying their supply chains. 
we've discussed this on the show before. You can't change your supply chains overnight. Do you think that's why Canada is perhaps seeing fewer companies do that? Well, you know, when, you know, we do a lot of research as part of the, our consulting business. And one of the things we say is it's one thing for either a consumer or a business person to say they're considering something or they are going to do something. And it is completely a different thing to say that they have done something. And so Mm -hmm. I would say I wouldn't read as much into the numbers and the differences between Canada and the U.S. uh, as all that. I would say what you need to think about is how hard it is going to be to diversify your supply chain. And what you need to think about is, are you diversifying your supply chain for the next two years? because the pandemic is with us and we don't imagine we're going to be out of it at least for a year and maybe two, or are you diversifying your supply chain because it's something that you've always wanted to do and now is a good time to do it and you realize you need more flexibility, a shorter supply chain, uh, more just in time, more diversity of suppliers for leverage or uh, for supply uh, redundancies, et cetera. So I think the main theme is think about why you're doing it and make sure that you are doing it for the long term, because it can take you several months to shift your supply chain. Uh, And I don't I wouldn't want to see businesses spend six months to change their supply chain and then get the benefit of that for two years if it's not relevant for something that is post pandemic. You know, it is easier to stop buying from China than it is to start buying from China. And I say that just because China is I mean far away and it requires you know a different skill set relationships uh cultural adaptation uh and it's easier to pull back from china but that doesn't mean it's easy because you still have mm-hmm. to say okay if not china i mean that's just one way you diversify your supply chain by the way but if not china then where mm-hmm. and uh one of the main things i think people are thinking about and we're going to talk this about this as we talk about businesses pivoting in general I'm guessing when they, when they say they want to change their supply chain, a lot of them are thinking they want to make it more flexible. They want to make it more just in time. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to be like Toyota. But uh, what they need to realize is that there are no absolute good decisions. There are good decisions when you consider one aspect and not the other. And so everything has a trade-off. And so you could say, well, I want to have a supply chain that is a lot more flexible. Uh, so that I don't have to buy goods uh, as long. And that's related to a supply chain that is shorter, right? Because if it is long, it takes a long time to get goods. You have to make bets earlier. Well, that's okay. But just remember that if everybody in industry is doing that, somebody else is going to say, okay, I'm going to take a bit of a bigger bet and I'm going to get a cost advantage. And so I I would just say, you know, don't be knee-jerk in changing your supply chain because it's going to take you a long time and you are making a decision and no decision is automatic, even though it may look obvious for the next, like I say, two years or so. Yeah, yeah. There's so much uncertainty. And actually on that just-in-time uh, supply chain delivery, it seems like the distribution centers that Walmart is going to be doing are actually uh, giving them a cushion so it doesn't have to do that and they don't face shortages in the same way that they did. But we'll see how that works out and what happens next. Um, There is one specific supply chain story that I do want to touch on before we move on to our next segment. Um, I don't know about you, but we had heard anecdotally that uh, people were having a hard time finding lumber and materials for their renovation projects. I know that um, my parents had been uh, planning on expanding their deck and they went to the store and couldn't find any planks. (laughs) They had to wait a little bit of time before they could actually get that. Um, So we were wondering, is this a supply chain issue or is this just huge demand? So we got uh, my colleague from Yahoo Finance Canada, Jesse Baines, on the case. 
And what he found was that the lumber industry actually underestimated demand and basically slowed down production, um, th thinking that people would be out of work and not spending money on uh, renovations at home. That turned out not to be the case. Um, as our managing editor, Christy March, tweeted out, lumber is the new toilet paper. Um, what do you... What do you think? Should the lumber industry have anticipated the fact that people would actually be spending money on renovation projects like this? Well, I think one of the questions is they underestimated it, but did they underestimate it on purpose? Because one of the things I always talk about with you know supply chain decisions and inventory forecasts is you are always weighing you know the cost of too much inventory against the cost of too little inventory. And we don't have time in the show to go through the newsboy model, which is the, the I'll say the classic way that you think about, should I, should I err on buying too much or should I err on buying too little? Because you never can predict demand exactly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're selling Diet Coke uh, in North America, you could predict demand with a reasonable amount of certainty. If you're selling lumber for DIY, that is different types of projects and different types, it's very hard. So the decision they're making is, should I err on too much or err on too little? They clearly decided to err on too little. And now the, the market is paying the price for it in higher prices and a shortage. That doesn't mean that they are looking back and saying they made a mistake in hindsight. Because if they had, er if they had erred on too much, and don't forget, businesses in March of this year, just like businesses in September of 2008, were completely shell-shocked. There was a giant, there was a giant uh, thing that happened in the market that they, you know, in 2008, they'd seen something like it, but it still felt like something they hadn't seen. And in March of 2020, 2020, it was something they'd never seen. And so they had no way to sort of very quickly say, which model should I use? How should I predict this? You know, with the benefit of time, everybody seems like, oh, well, yes, I was thinking about it and I've seen this before. But at the time they were shocked. They said, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to bet on too mm -hmm. much or bet on too little. They bet on too little. And so what happened? They missed some opportunity. But that doesn't mean they made a giant mistake. By the way, the other thing with the lumber, uh, because uh, we looked into it as well, and I, I read Jesse's article, of course, but um, there were also some other genuine, uh, uh, I'll say, things that happened in the market that curtailed supply over the last couple of years. So you had exports to China that were increasing. You had a hurricane back a couple of years that caused price increases. And don't forget, the lockdown itself in the early phases actually limited the degree to which uh, companies were able to produce. I mean, you know, you start in the forest and, you know, you go to mills, mm -hmm. and, you know, you get to it. So it comes down the chain. So uh, I think, so I guess my summary is it wasn't all they're doing, although perhaps most, and even if it was they're doing, it's not necessarily bad news. I mean, when you're producing uh, anything and you're selling anything, whether you're the retailer or, or the distributor or the producer, and the shelves are empty and the price is high, that's a good position to be in. Yeah, I was just going to say that the, the price has gone up <laughs> in the last few months. So um, perhaps it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the worst decision. Um, okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Okay, Mark, let's move on to the part of the show where we dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing in this pandemic and get your ideas for the fix. Um, I think one thing we discussed about with Walmart is it's an example of how a company is making business decisions based on what they are seeing happen through the last few months because of the coronavirus pandemic. And we've actually seen a a lot of businesses adapting to, uh, to all this uncertainty, some with great success. I think about restaurants, um, which, you know, have changed to takeout um, or, or meal kits, or in the case of this wine bar that I really like uh, usually going to, they are now kind of a wine shop. They sell bottles you can't find at the LCBO. I don't even think they're going to shift to reopening their restaurant once uh, they are allowed to enter stage three. Um, Auto manufacturing companies as well, you know, GM, Linamar started producing personal protective equipment. Um, So, I mean, it's unclear whether these changes will be permanent, but what advice do you have for companies that are looking to pivot their business in light of this pandemic? What's the fix? So as, as I mentioned uh, at the top of the show, this is something we deal with all the time. I mean, companies call management consultants when they are thinking about changing their business. And we are the ones to say, okay, well, take a step back. Tell me why you're changing your business and let's, let's analyze it. And I think, you know, there's a lot of input that I want to give to people and a lot of uh, backdrop. You know, the, the first thing is you need to be scenario based. You cannot be just reactive. You cannot say, this happened and I'm going to do this. Now, Mm -hmm. in the short term, for things that don't require a lot of investment and things that you could change back easily after, of course you can. And so your wine bar, uh, they had a lot of wine inventory. Uh, They cannot Mm -hmm. use the inside. And I think of a wine bar that I know on Young Street that I was walking by. uh, They happen to have a patio, but they have lots of empty space inside. It's pretty easy to say, let's take this counter. Uh, and let's take all the wine we have and let's put it on the counter and let's put a price tag on it. And uh, they may say now, well, when phase three happens or stage three happens, we're not going back. I'm not sure that that is the decision they're going to make in a year from now when everybody's back to eating in restaurants and actually buying wine at the LCBO. Because the $30 mm-hmm. bottle of wine that you bought at the wine bar, you can get at the LCBO for 18 bucks. So I, right. I, so I would say it's easy to make quick changes, but when you think about bigger changes, you have to think about, okay, what is the capital that I'm investing in and what am I giving up? And again, you know, I say this time and time again, this pandemic is here for a while. It is not here forever. And when you make a decision to change your business in one direction, there'll be somebody else who will make the opposite decision and take advantage, right? And so the way we think about it is we think, okay, well, what type of pivot are you thinking of making? Are you thinking of changing uh, the way you go to market, the way you price? So in other words, you're offering to the consumer, uh, or are you thinking about changing something about the way you get supplied, right? Which is behind the scenes, but still very relevant. Uh, Or are you thinking of changing your business structure? And when you think about it, a lot of people today, you know, they've made a knee-jerk reaction, say, okay, well, here's a story. 
Uh, my business is hard to predict. I'm just going to go to a completely variable model. I'm going to contract out all the labor, right? And in my industry, uh, as you probably know, that's something that a lot of people do. They say, okay, well, Mark, you know, you have uh, a staff of consultants and you pay them whether you get work or not. And obviously when times are slow, you don't make a lot of money. And when times are, are good, you do. Uh, why wouldn't you just, uh, when the pandemic hits, uh, get rid of everybody and go to a contract model? And my answer to that, which is my answer to a lot of people considering that, is that, of course, during slow times, I give up a lot. But in busy times, I get the benefit of a lower cost and a source of, in my case, labor that I can control and train and guarantee the product. And so, again, remember that everything you do, there is another side to it. And so you have to be scenarios based and you have to be thinking about the long term. And again, this pandemic will eventually be gone. It's hard because it doesn't seem like it's going to be gone because here we are yeah. we're four and a half months in, you know, I was talking to somebody, you know, yesterday, there's no end in sight. There's no end in sight, but there is an end. Yeah. It seems like also the major changes, we saw them kind of happen at the beginning of the pandemic and not much has, you know, we haven't, uh, hasn't been a dramatic change back. So I mean, for businesses that have made those changes and um, perhaps have been thinking that they're temporary, if they're looking to make them permanent or, as you mentioned, over the long term, what are the factors they need to consider? What should they be thinking about when looking over that long term? So I think the first thing is make sure you know why you are pivoting, right? So are you pivoting because there's something about the product that you sell that is no longer relevant? Kodak should have pivoted their business five years before they did, right? That's an easy example for me to, to, to pick out, but they had a product, right? Uh, and then if you are a store that was developing pictures for people, right, then you see you have seen them slowly pivot because they're not going to sell as much when people bring in the role of film. And I know very young people are like, what's he talking about? But, you know, when you, <laughs> when you bring in the role of film and you wind it and you put it down and you're excited to get the pictures from your vacation, you come back three days later and you may buy a frame with it or you may buy something else. Well, now there are still stores that develop uh, some film, but they mostly are selling some of the other stuff. So uh, are you pivoting because, you know, the product you sell is no longer relevant? And again, here for the pandemic, is it no longer relevant temporarily or is it no longer relevant permanently? Uh, or are you pivoting because you've actually lost a cost advantage or you've lost a key person or a key resource? So what you really need to examine is, why you're pivoting because when you know why you're pivoting and what's happened to the business it will lead to a better i'll say decision of how to pivot it right are there examples of companies that you think have done a good job of pivoting in this pandemic on you know short-term notice i guess well yeah I, I guess you know we talk about the restaurant industry and and i i think the ones that have said we have always needed to do this i'll just give a blanket answer companies that have said we have always needed to do this, and now we have the impetus or the catalyst to do it, and we're doing it well. You know, bravo to them. The healthcare industry, all aspects of the healthcare industry. Uh, I don't know if you consider that a business, but I do. Uh, that is the industry that is going to benefit forever. And as citizens of this country, we are going to benefit from the shift to a digital healthcare delivery model. Right. Because we've all, you know, people who watch the space, we do some business in healthcare. Uh, when you watch the space, you have said for a long time, why have they not pivoted sooner? Why can we not do this more efficiently? Uh, and so that's an example of an industry where they've said it's something I've always wanted to do. Now I better hurry up and do it 
but I know that it's going to be there after. And so I think that's sort of what you, and by the way, that, that may not always be the case. And sometimes there may be businesses who say, well, it's not that I, it's not that I wanted to pivot. And it's not that I know that what I'm pivoting to is going to be the answer. It's I'm going to survive. And so your wine bar, uh, I don't want to pick on the place that you love, but uh, your <laughs> wine bar, I think it's survival. I think it is, what are we going to do? We need cash. You know, we may or may not have made the deal with our landlord. Uh, we want to keep some of our employees. What are we going to do? Well, let's, let's do this and worry about it later. But that's not a pivot. That's survival. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into a yeah. pivot if you've analyzed the market, spoken to your customers, and then looked at what you think is sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I know that you had mentioned this on previous episodes as well. Um, there's businesses that can make those changes and pivot alone. And then ones that need perhaps help or want to partner up with someone. Um, so I'm obviously talking about mergers and acquisitions. Um, so let's talk about that, that as an option, what should businesses be considering when it comes to potentially partnering or or being acquired or, or looking at private equity to partner up with? Um, I know this is an area that that you do a lot of work in. So what are your thoughts, Mark? So uh, we, we've done a little bit of analysis that we can show uh, on screen here because uh, we we look at what happens uh, during recessions uh, when businesses are being bought and sold. And the chart that you see now uh, is looking at deal multiples that are, uh, and we track them, uh, I'll say during recession, and we could leave it up there for a minute because you can see that uh, during the last recession, uh, and the actual number doesn't matter, but for your reference, you know, if businesses often sell at, you know, or we're selling at 10 times EBITDA uh, before the recession, during the recession, that multiple falls, right? And then you also see on this chart that after the recession, they slowly climb, there were some rises and falls, uh, we've gone, I mean, we've gone to 2015 on this slide. We could have gone further. Uh, but what happens is eventually those multiples come back. And so the private equity industry has actually been waiting for something that caused a recession for what they would say for multiples to come back to earth. And so it's relevant because if you are an investor, uh, you need to think about, you know, are you buying a business because there's an opportunity to buy a business at a low multiple? And that is for a private equity fund or a seasoned investor? Or are you buying a business, or, and we'll talk about selling as well, because you've decided that you want to pivot, and the best way to pivot is by buying or partnering or selling to somebody who does what you want to pivot into. And they're actually two different things, and you need to be conscious of which one you want to be. And you, for most business people, should probably be the latter because most of us are not sophisticated enough to be able to time the market the way that chart implies. And if you own a business, you should not be out there saying, what other businesses can I buy that are going to distract me from the core of what I do every day and make me not as good at that as managing this new business that I bought? What you should be thinking is, how is the market changing? How do I want to change my business? What is the capital involved? Is it a good time to sell? Is it a good time to buy? Am I going to be stronger with somebody else? Are we going to get synergy because putting it together is, you know, one plus one equals three to give the the oldest sort of uh, catchphrase out there, right? So So what should, if you are considering selling, because it does seem like that might be a a more realistic option if you're not in private equity yourself, um, what should you be considering and thinking about at this time? Well, uh, we don't have to put the chart back, but if you remember the, vi- the the visual of it, you should also remember that 
because regardless of whether it's a private equity investor or somebody who's in your industry or just a private investor, they may be looking to take advantage of the fact that multiples fall during recessions, right? Uh, and as I say, people have been who buy businesses have been waiting for this to happen. And to be fair to them, multiples have been too high for a long period of time. And that's because capital has been too readily available, uh, and both in terms of equity capital and debt capital, and that's driven the valuation up. And now there's still a lot of capital available. There's just an excuse for businesses to be worth less. And one of the questions is if businesses are trading at a multiple of their earnings, and this, you know, people who are selling their business need to think about, well, it's one thing for the buyer to say, I'm going to pay a lower multiple, but which earnings are you talking about? Because if you're talking about my earnings from 2019, which were high, it may be fair for you to get a slight discount on that multiple because my 2020 earnings are going to fall and there's less certainty that my 2021 earnings are going to be the 2019 ones. But if they're buying you based on a multiple of your 2020 earnings, it actually should be a very high multiple because you're going to assume, again, for most businesses that didn't sort of have a net benefit from this, you actually are going to assume that your earnings are going to go up. And so they should actually pay a premium if they're buying a multiple of this year's earnings. So I would hmm. say, and I think we talked about it a bit on other shows, you know, if you can, don't be desperate. Remember hmm. that people are looking for a deal. Remember that uh, the more people who are looking at your business, like supply and demand, like for anything, a business is no different than uh, other commodities. The more people who want to buy your business, the more likely the price of your business is going to go up. So remember that people have that chart in mind and remember that although you may have decided you want to sell, you know, this is your last chance to sort of make a real buck in a one-time way. Uh, just try and not be too desperate about it if you can. Yeah, it is. It is challenging though, because I mean, we have seen M&A activity dip significantly during, throughout this pandemic. Um, there's some stats about, uh, M&A activity in Canada in the first half of the year, there were 206 deals valued at $16.3 billion. Uh, that might seem like a lot, but it's a decline of 63%. Uh, last year, at the same time, there were 352 deals worth $44.3 billion. Um, so, I mean, it might be a little bit, I know you don't want to be a desperate seller, but it doesn't seem like there's that many buyers right now. Well, there Right now, there are. So the stats that you are pulling are mm -hmm. about, uh, year, I mean, was it first quarter or year to date that you had? Uh, first half of the year. So up to Okay, so first half. So I'll say it's more year to date. So you are right that overall, we've not caught up. Uh, but I could tell you that uh, in March and April, uh, because a big portion of our business is for private equity funds who are buying businesses or strategics who are buying other businesses, mostly funds. Uh, there was not a lot going on in that portion of our business, but we have worked on two commercial diligence projects in the last two months, right? Where businesses are buying each other and we, and we're talking to other people. So I would say the dip has happened and there are still many funds who are not looking to buy. They're looking to shore up uh, existing companies. And there are many people who are too risk averse to want to buy a competitor in a strategic situation, but the deal activity is coming back. And and again, what I said earlier, there is still a ton of capital available, a ton. And so if you think about at the institutional level, there's both equity capital and debt capital available. And even at the individual level, you know, so an investor, you know, somebody who owns a business and owns their home, 
Now, all of a sudden, they could refinance their home for the lowest price they ever could in terms of interest, right? Right. So the opportunity for them to say, if they are courageous and they like risk, for them to say, you know what? I'm going to expand my business. I'm actually going to buy my competitor, but I need a million dollars to do it. Well, guess what? I own a home in downtown Toronto. It's worth $2 million and I paid off a lot of my mortgage. I'm going to go to my bank. I'm going to get a mortgage. I'm going to get a million dollars. I'm going to pay a very low interest rate. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to get that interest tax deductible because I'm actually specifically borrowing it to make an investment. And so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, yes, we have seen deal uh, multiples and deal volumes fall, but I don't think it's necessarily uh, going to be here that long. And again, to give you a bit of courage as a seller, remember that there are people out there with capital. And if you find a way to attract a few of them, even to kick the tires, you know, so much of it is psychology. So you want to at least know in your head that you've had conversations with two or three people, even if you know that you're going to go with this one. Right. So that when you look at them and say, I have other options, you're not lying to yourself. Yeah. Make sure you seek out all possible opportunities. For sure. Um, Okay, Mark, thank you so much for this conversation. That's all the time that we have for today. If you want to rewatch this episode or get caught up on the latest coronavirus pandemic news from an economics perspective, please check out Yahoo Finance Canada's website. We've also launched Crisis Management as a podcast. So make sure you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe. If you have any questions for Mark or feedback about the show, you can also email me at alicja at yahoofinance.com. Thank you for tuning in. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.